John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be uh, looking at uh, uh, documents from the American Civil War, as we have been and will be for a while. Um, this episode will finish up our look at 1861, gets a little bit into 1862, and then um, starting next episode, we'll be fully into the second volume of this anthology, um, looking at the very, very bloody um, transformative year of 1862. Um, so... Um, where do we start here? Well, there's not too much in the way of, of battlefield stuff to talk about in this episode. Really, what we get here is um, uh, the U.S. government kind of rethinking things and, and, you know, during a pretty dark winter. You know, the defeats at Wilson's Creek, uh, was it Ball's Bluff? Uh, of course, the first battle of Bull Run. You, uh, McClellan becomes a new commander, but then he comes down with typhoid fever and he's sick for much of the winter of 1861-62. And um, although the army's being built up, um, things are kind of slow on the front and there's anxiety about the, the outcome of the war in Washington. Um, now, there's also anxiety in the South, but we don't get as much of a window into that in this uh these documents, but I think in the next set of documents, we'll, we'll see more about that as well. Um, you know, cause in a, in a sense they, they would have, they have their own issues to deal with, uh, with leadership, with, uh, you know, the lack of a rapid success for them to the war, you know, they expected a short war too. And when they didn't get it, you know, they had to kind of retool for a, for a longer conflict. So, um, Anyway, so let's just jump right into this and, and see where these documents take us. Um, the first one actually is really, really wild. It's uh, something I've never read about or knew about before. Um, it's a document by a man named Henry Tucker, and it's titled God in the War, and it's a sermon given on November 15th, 1861 in Georgia. And it's just really, really hardcore stuff here. Um, uh, he actually gave this before the Georgia State Legislature, so it wasn't a, a, a sermon to his congregation. But we can imagine that sermons before different congregations uh, throughout the South maybe explored similar themes here. Um, but the focus here is really apocalyptic, and I think that's what's striking about this sermon. And, and I think you can find it if you don't have this anthology. I think you go to like archive.org. I, I think there was a copy there when I was searching for it. I wanted to learn more about Henry Tucker. There's not that much about him um but you know and i think that's significant like we think about the major secessionists like uh um you know like robert e lee or jefferson davis or or these types of people and how significant they are in history and how they are everyone knows them right but there are loads of people who were hardcore for the secession for the confederacy who survived the war and lived on and just kind of lived on their life and you know it'd be interesting to look at how they came to terms with this i don't know how much we could find out but maybe that's an interesting research project to see 
Um, to what degree do they change their ideas? To what degree do they just become embittered? Do they become clan members or clan supporters, silent clan members in some cases? You know, how do they deal with the Reconstruction era and all that? Um, but anyways, Henry Tucker's one of these people under the radar type of historical figures, I guess. But he does give this sermon, and it's, like I said, it's really, really wild. Uh, a lot of focus on murder. I mean, that's how it's, the war is talked about, the murder. It's, uh, the desolation caused by the war really compared to what would come in 1862 and 1863 and of course at the end of the war you know the desolation and murder of the first year it doesn't seem to compare but it was still greater than what had been experienced before I, I guess the first battle of bull run was the biggest battle in u.s soil up to that point um and of course i think the battle of shiloh Early in 1862, more people would die in that battle than in the entire battle deaths up to that point in, in maybe American history, or, or is it just in the Civil War? I mean, it's really, really things change in 62 in the level of, of brutality. But he's talking about it, you know, in that the language that you might have expected later in the war, but you see it here. Um, quote, desolation, desolation, hearts desolate, homes desolate, the whole land desolate. Our young men, our brave young men, our future statesmen and scholars and divines to whom we should bequeath this great, uh, though youthful empire with all its destinies, the flower of our society, contributions from that genuine and proper aristocracy, which consists of intelligence and virtue, thousands, thousands of laid upon the altar. And alas, the end is not yet. Another six months may more than double the desolation. End quote. And it goes on like this for quite a while. So a lot of predicting future desolation too. Um, and, and maybe this is part of the, the mood of the South at this point, that it, you know this was going to be a long, long war. Um, also, a lot of revenge narrative here. Very much Southern secessionists had believed by this point that, and they sort of always believed this, that the war was inflicted on them by the North, that the Lincoln was the aggressor, the Republicans were the aggressor, even though they had started secession, they fired the first shots. The narrative was one of Northern aggression against them. And so there's a talk here about the need for revenge. Um, and this feeds into also f this kind of revengeful discussion of the war talks into his fear of a slave revolt. So he goes really deeply into the issue of slavery, obsessing about uh, the, that that there's going to be slave revolts, and this is going to be the cause of the Republican Party, and that bloodshed will be on them as well. So the fact that they, he sees the war in terms of aggression and revenge, and then he sees the threat of a slave revolt seems significant to me, that, that he's kind of from all sides. It's just about revenge and violence and, you know, getting back at, at, at an oppressor from, from different sides. And there's a, perhaps a little bit of fearful honesty there that, you know, what we do may cause a slave revolt. What we're doing to, to black people may cause a slave revolt. And, uh, you know, this is going to bring further desolation and destroy us. So it actually takes him a while to get this into a religious narrative. So he's talking, and he, I mean, that's the thesis of this sermon is where is God in this war in all this devastation and revenge and violence and hatred where is it and um, and he sort of talks about a divine economy just just that God's will is good and God's plan is good and um, 
where there's evil, there's good as well uh, under the surface, and that evil is always balanced, and good will always weigh out in the end, and that's kind of this divine economy he mentions. Thank God is also true that whenever evil comes, we may know there's good at hand in national or an in individual experience when the godless soul sees only a dark cloud fraught with terror and with wrath. To the Christians, the cloud resolves itself into a blazing star that guides to the best of blessings. When God says to our children, all things work together for good to make them that love God, the heart and believer also, no exceptions, and thus rejoices in tribulations also. So he's saying that this, this suffering is just what you see in front of you, but the larger plan is, is good. And so he actually says, if anything, we should make God more central to the war and the war effort and the Southern war effort. So that's his, that's the pitch he makes to this Georgia state legislature is that God should be a bigger part in how we think about the war, not less of one. And we shouldn't get bogged down in the desolation stuff, but see it as all part of God's plan. And he does turn at the end of the sermon to turn his wrath on like the Georgia government itself and the Georgia legislature as being to a degree complicit in, in crimes against God, not making God central to every man's life. Quote, if the kingdom of Christ be not set up in the hearts of the people, no government can exist except by force. All of you then who have no personal experience with any of the grace of the gospels are so far in the way of your country's prosperity. The first step is for you to take to take is belief in Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sins and giving him your heart. But aside from this, let us look at our public morals. So then he goes into what the legislature can do to ensure public morality. So it becomes kind of more of a straightforward reformist, second great awakening style, focus on public morality and the role of the state in, in creating moral reform. But he ties it all into the war effort. So there's a lot of interesting stuff here in Tucker's thesis here. Essentially, he's saying that God and God's plan should be understood and made central to the Southern War effort. Um, and this will lead forth, the, he's got sort of a bit of a millennial vision too about desolation and revenge and violence leading to some kind of promised land or hopeful moment at the end. All right, so next we have Jefferson Davis's message to the Confederate Congress in 1861. Um, not too much I want to say about this particular document, to be honest. It's He's kind of covering a lot of the same ground we've already seen. Um, you know, he starts out talking about successes and early battles, battlefield successes, which we've already seen. Of course, Bullson's Creek and Battle of Bull Run are the most significant of these. Uh, then he focuses on the, this, the U.S. as the aggressor, the crimes of the United States and stealing property and all this stuff. Uh, it seems in some sense they don't quite get the point that they started a war and they're at war and... You can't really blame someone for blockading you and taking your property when you are at war <laughs> with them. But it's, um, this, that's the other funny thing, violating our rights under the law of nations at home when you declare yourself a different nation. Um, anyways, that's, it's a little tedious. He complains about the blockade well, but then he, he, you see him here. Here's where I, what I wanted to say before is it's, you get the sense that the South wasn't as confident, at least. Davis isn't as confident as maybe the Southern civilian was after those early victories because there's a lot of talk here about preparing for sacrifice, sacrifice long-term sacrifice for the war effort um, that, you know, they're a revolution, and this revolution is going to take a long time for them to achieve their goals. And it's going to be a lot of struggle to do that.
Um, so that's that. Um, that's his message to Congress, kind of the end of the year message. All right, next we have uh, Harper's Weekly, December 7th, 1861. Uh, this is just a the review of the Grand Army of the Potomac, um, which was, it's like a news report uh, in Harper's about McClellan's Grand Review. And, you know, you can take this or leave it. I think it was a significant event because McClellan was focusing on building up the Army and training it and getting it ready for the campaigns of the future. Um, and this is just a kind of a journalistic snapshot of that review. So we get to see, you know, the different, a list of the different units and the different divisions that were in Washington. But, you know, the, what we get here is this large volunteer army is coming to its own um, and at least being, having the training it needs for the future campaigns. Those future campaigns will train them in different ways, as we'll see in in the course of the next volume where it's another really kind of rough year in in American history for for both sides but particularly for for the US and the the US army you know defeat after defeat especially in the in the eastern uh, theater but nevertheless, this army gets built up and it's just being displayed here. So I think it's important that they include this in this anthology because it is a, an event that in the history of the U.S. Army. What do you think? I mean, I, I know like these uh, kind of grand reviews is, is kind of in the 20th century mindset. It's kind of an authoritarian thing, right? And you can imagine the People's Liberation Army in China, you know, marching on the streets of Beijing during some celebration. It seems like it's something that authoritarian states do and democracies don't. I don't think the U.S. military does this anymore, ever. You just got the, like, these local parades, right? These VFWs at the 4th of July parade or whatever. It's at a smaller scale, but not the large scale in the capital. Um, what do we got next? Uh, U.S. Grant to Jesse Root Grant. So this is um, this is his father. Um, and what's here? Well, once again, he says uh, that there's a relationship between the war effort and slavery. He's been saying this from the beginning in his letters. That I mean, the line before was that the war will bring an end to slavery. That's his prediction. Um, and here he kind of shifts a little bit his focus. I think maybe after early defeats, he thinks now to win war, there must be a declaration of war on slavery itself. So um, he says, if it's necessary that slavery should fall, that the republic may continue its existence, let slavery go. But the portion of the press that advocates the beginning of such a war now are as great, are as great enemies to their country as if they were open and about secessionists, end quote. So he's a little nuanced here. Um, he's kind of saying the media doesn't understand the war and the media, whether it's like really anti-slavery or not, is not fully understanding this in a grand strategic sense. And they don't really, they're kind of undermining the war effort in, in this way. So he says, yes, if slavery may have to go to end the war, but pushing that in the media may not be the most effective way to win the war. And there's a difference between the, what needs to be done and what potentially may need to be done and how that's advertised to the public, I guess. That seems to be what he's saying. Little, pub little personal things, too, about, uh, 
about his wife and some of his purchases of a new horse and all these things. But I think the heart of this letter, the most important thing about this letter is Grant's views on the relationship to slavery and the war. Um, so next we have Sally Brock, uh, who's writing, who wrote, for, who wrote a later memoir called Richmond During the War. I think we may have seen um, a document by her before. I'm having a hard time remembering them all. Maybe I should keep a, a list. Maybe I'll do that. Um, just so at the end, when I'm done with this series, we can see how many George Templeton Strong, how many Jefferson Davis documents we have. That might be kind of fun. But anyways, um, this, this is about life in Richmond during the war, of course, as you might expect. Um, but the focus of this passage is on the surplus population in Richmond. Of course, you have in Richmond people coming in. You have people coming in because of the army nearby. You have people coming in because it's, it's now the center of government. So you have government workers coming in, and Richmond's kind of swelling. It, it's not really built for that, that population. So it is kind of a swelled, growing surplus population in the city. Um, and this is contributing to shortages and inflations, um, which, of course, are intrinsic to the whole Confederate war effort. I mean, they happen all the time. You have Confederate paper money becoming worth less and less. You have shortages and all sorts of things. But uh, it's I'm, I'm not sure that in Richmond these are caused by those things yet. Maybe they are, but... It might also just be because you have so many people in Richmond and it's grown so quickly, so fast that the economy really hasn't rebalanced because of that. But certainly what she's talking about here, inflation and shortages and the people not being used to those shortages and being frustrated by those are going to be key factors in the defeat of the Confederacy. Um, next, uh, Benjamin Morin from his journal. This is about the, the Trent Affair. So we actually have a couple documents here dealing with British diplomacy that we just need to kind of get out of the way. Um, so the Trent Affair, uh, basically the U.S., a U.S. ship called the San uh, Jacinto stopped the Trent near Cuba. And this was kind of part of the blockade strategy. Um, but on the ship were some Confederate diplomats who were going to Britain and France to negotiate stuff. So obviously the part of the blockade goal was to isolate the Confederacy diplomatically, not just economically. And so that helps account for why this ship was seized. It was uh, very popular to do this in the North, of course, but it, it risked... The, te the relationship with England. Um, so it's that's what Benjamin Morin here is is writing about. Now Morin was a secretary to the to this kind of Adams delegation in London. So he's somehow connected to the Adams. I don't quite know his relationship, but he's definitely talks about Adams. Remember, uh, Henry Adams' father was the diplomat in London at the time. So he has to deal with this, and I think that's another great achievement of of. Charles Francis Adams Sr. during the war was to keep Britain neutral and not and, and avoid a war. Because as we saw a couple episodes ago, that was something that Henry Adams was really, really worried about. He thought war was going to come with Great Britain just because of mismanagement and the diplomacy. Um, and we got that same fear here in this diary. Uh, connected to this is the next document, which is Henry Adams to Charles Francis Adams. Uh, 
uh, another sort of the series of letters back and forth between these two two brothers. Um, now this this one really shows a lot of helplessness um, on the on the part of Henry Adams about war and Stuart's belligerence, at least what he sees as his belligerence, that he's basically trying, almost trying to get a war with England. Um, I don't think he was, but I, I do think Stuart was trying to put England in as much as possible in a position where it's, it, it can't recognize the Confederacy. That was the great fear, right, that the Confederacy would get some kind of international recognition, and of course it never did. That's the great success of maybe of Stuart's Secretary of State um, period, uh, period of Secretary of State. Maybe some other things we could put on that list as well, but that's like obviously one of the biggest ones. So the Confederacy was beat diplomatically just as it was beat militarily. So um, I don't know, not much more to say about this. I didn't take too many notes on this particular document. But here, Henry Adams is not at all confident that, that Seward's doing a good job in preventing uh, a war. He says, this nation means to make war. Do not doubt it. What Stuart means, Seward means is more than I can guess. But if he means war also, or, as or to run as close as he can without touching it, then I say that Mr. Seward is the greatest criminal we've yet had. Pretty harsh words for the Secretary of State, who Henry Adams sort of works for. Um, so next we have Lincoln's annual message, which I'm pretty sure I must have talked about in the Lincoln series. Um, but I don't remember exactly what I said about it, so I can't compare. I probably skipped over it pretty quickly because the annual messages tend to be pretty boring things. Um, long State of the Union speeches, right? But a couple interesting things he does say here. One is he encourages the recognition of Liberia and Haiti, which uh, are significant as, as you know, black republics. Haiti, of course, wasn't recognized being a, you know, a former slave state that has its revolution, um, and there was fear of the spread of slave revolts. So that was one reason Haiti was kept at arm's length. And of course, Liberia, recognizing them, I, I, I didn't realize it wasn't recognized because it was settled by African Americans, right? It was part of this colonization project. So. But anyways, he calls for that. But those being black states, I think it's a significant event in kind of the narrative of emancipation, perhaps, and changing our attitudes internationally about these um, black republics. Uh, he talks about uh, governing occupied areas. So there's a lot of details here about what to do in occupied areas, the administration of justice, the administration's uh, activities there, because until those places are reconstructed and have their own state governments, they're going to be under some sort of military rule, therefore under the executive branch's governance. So things like confiscation, what to do with former slaves or freedmen, what to do with day-to-day uh, -day justice, setting up courts, military justice, these are kinds of things he's laying out here. And of course, these are going to become more significant as the war goes on, as more and more of the South is brought back under uh, the control of the federal government. And certainly, I think there's probably an argument to be made that the expansion of state power in the during and after the Civil War maybe has something to do with this experience of gov of military governance, right? This extension of these good branches power to justice and commerce and law and those kinds of things at the state level. And then when they're reconstructed, when those states are brought back into the Union, they're they're doing so after an experience of direct federal control. So it's something I'm going to keep an eye on when I when I reread Foner's book, which I intend to do at some point. Um, as I, as I, you know, I'm kind of going to read along with some 
literature, literature that I've been, you know, haven't read in a while, haven't looked at in a while, or or or, or need to read again, like that uh, Freedom National book, which I'm almost done with now, the James Oakes book, which is a lot of like like legal stuff, and it, it focuses very heavily on 61 and 62, so really relevant to this early part of the series, but it, it's a bit of a slog, but I think there's a lot of good, you know, history there, I suppose. A lot of good, uh, a lot of important stuff that maybe is not as dramatic as the contraband stuff or the Fremont affair, but significant to the Republican Party's movement towards the Emancipation Proclamation. Which we'll get to shortly, I suppose. Um, all right, next, Song of the Contrabands, uh, Let My People Go. So this, I, I looked this up, and it seems that it, this was something being sung before. This is the Go Down Moses song. You probably heard like Paul Robeson sing a version of this, you know. But I think this song predates 1861, but this was written down in in Virginia in September 61 with with the goal of, of encouraging people to or the or to basically what does it say here the Reverend Lewis Lockwood was sent by the American Missionary Association to Fort Monroe Virginia so this is where when I looked this up this is where it was first written down Fort Monroe uh, to assist former slaves living within Union lines so he heard this song being sung and he transcribed it and it was published in the National Anti-Slavery Standard Later. So it's kind of called this, it was published as the Song of the Contrabands, or Let My People Go. So go take a listen to the song. The lyrics pretty much, I think, are more or less unchanged. There's a lot of verses and they're short, so it's, there's a lot of space to add verses or change them or change the lyrics. But um, like uh, John Brown's Body, another song that sort of reached national prominence uh, in, the, in the era of the Civil War. I guess I skipped one. I skipped Charles Adams' letter to Henry Adams in December 1861, which uh, is just about him going to Port Royal and his choice to enlist, and also his kind of response to Henry Adams' fear of a possible war with, uh, with Great Britain. So I guess we're coming to the end here, uh, the end of the year. Um, only a few documents left. Um, the next, first is, I think this is our first Robert E. Lee document, which was to George Washington Curtis Lee. And that is his, that's his son, I guess. Um, so he, what, at the time, this is before he gets command of the Army of Northern Virginia. That happens early in 62 during the, the Seven Days Battles, uh, the, the Peninsula Campaign. But this, uh, this is when he's like working on fortifications on the coast of Virginia. Um, and basically what he writes to his son is that we're going to have to win this w alone. We can't rely on, we can't hope to have recognition from England or even less so hope to have support directly from other countries. So he's, he's saying defenses, and, and he's thinking defensively. He's thinking how do I protect these, these coastal areas. Um, I don't know how successful those are because eventually McClellan just lands the troops you know, from the coast. So I guess you can't defend the whole coast, but, but um, that's what he was doing at the time. Um, next we have Edward Bates's diary. Edward Bates was attorney general, and he here you see really the dis disgust and the, uh, the frustration with Lincoln 
in this document where he basically says Lincoln's not acting. He, the general is sitting on his hands. And of course, I think by this point, McClellan was already fallen sick with, with uh, typhoid. I think it's mentioned here. And he just thinks that Lincoln needs to do more. Um, now, you know, I, I don't know if this criticism is, is, is just. I think Lincoln was pushing McClellan to do more with the army too. Um, there's Erwin McDowell who wants to be much more aggressive and you have, he changes the staff in the, in the War Department. So I don't know if these criticisms are accurate or justified. And of course, the war is won, so he must have been doing something right. But you can, you can understand the frustration when this is, when it's the, the realization this is going to be a long war and the body count is going to be high. That, that, of course, leads to people's uh, anger and frustration. Maybe he hopes maybe something could be done differently. You don't have like mutinous talk yet, but just anxieties. Um, so next we have a memo by Erwin McDowell, um, which talks about the relationship between McClellan and Lincoln. Now, of course, he, uh, in, in military history, I think he gets, he gets criticism. He, of course, he failed at Bull Run and later in the, the um, what is it? Is it the Valley Campaign? He's also defeated. So, um, but he's at, he, I mean, he's pushing for more action, I think. And, you know, Lincoln wants that, but basically this memo is a, is a discussion of different meetings with generals that Lincoln has and with McClellan. And basically, you know, McClellan's making excuses why he can't fight. He doesn't really know the enemy's strengths and all this. And then there's the push by the politicians to move. So that's kind of what this document is about. It's a it's a bit fog of warish, is you know because it is just a recitation of these different meetings. A lot of different people talking about their ignorance about this, what's going on here, or there, or people not communicating. It's a it's a sign of like chaos, I think, in the administration at this point, and not having a clear strategy. And of course, that would come. That that takes a while for it to be established, but. Um, you can see a lot of people being quite frustrated with the, the, the war and uh, the early defeats and, and McClellan's, you know, inability to do anything. And, of course, it's winter now, too, so I don't know if there's that much that can be done campaigning. You know. All right. Then we have a – now we're into actually 62. The bottom's out of the tub. Montgomery C. Mike's Memoir of Meeting with President Lincoln. So he was quartermaster general. Um, until the end of the war. And like the McDowell document, this is kind of a, oh, he's a witness to meetings between McClellan and, and Lincoln and their conversations. And I'll just read a bit of it. I've moved my chair to the side of McClellan's and urged him saying, the president evidently expects you to speak. Can you not promise a movement towards Manassas? You are strong, he replied. I cannot move on them with as great a force as they have. Why? You have near 200,000 men. How many have they have? Not less than 175,000, according to my advisees. I said, do you think so? And the president expects something from you, he replied. If I tell him my plans, they will be in the New York Herald tomorrow morning. He can't keep a secret. He will tell them to tab. I said, that is a pity, but he is the president, the commander in chief. He has the right to know and is not respectful to sit mute. When he clearly requires you to speak, he's a superior to all. 
end quote. So, so I guess this is actually a meeting McClellan and in my ex, the quartermaster general, but you ever see McClellan giving an excuse also why he's not moving. I don't know the troop strength. They might be, have as many men as me. And furthermore, if I do say my plans, it's, it's going to be leaked. So fears of leaks uh, existed back in, back in this, these days too. And now finally, the, the last document in this book is Ed, Edwin Stanton to Charles Dan, just talking about his elevation to, to the position of Secretary of War and his encouragement to use the army that's been built up over the previous months. Um, so, you know, this change in the War Department was in response to corruption, but also it allowed Lincoln to put in someone who needed to be there, I think, someone um, uh, who would carry on that position to the end of the war. So I guess that's it. I, this, this episode is much shorter than the last one, uh, probably because there's fewer documents. And I guess I have, I, I'm kind of excited to get into the next uh, volume to see how both sides deal with uh, the awareness that this, this war really was going to not only be long, but be pretty bloody as well. It's always fun to start a new book, too. So um, anyways, I guess that's all. So sorry for the short episode, but um, for me, the most interesting document here is probably that sermon I started out with, the, the God and the War, because it, it works on different levels, and it's uh, kind of, it's, it's, it's by a person who's not, uh, not as well-known as maybe some of the other figures we've been looking at in this, this series. So anyways, um, next time uh, we'll be looking at... Uh, Early 1862, I don't think there's too much uh, we can expect for battles early on, but eventually we're going to get to the the attack on Richmond, the Battle of Shiloh, Antietam, all those really significant Civil War battles. So a lot of action, I guess, in the next few episodes. we got the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, that comes out, that's in there too. We have uh, Battle of Fredericksburg, so we'll... A lot's going to be packed into those 700 pages. So anyways, that's it for now. I will see you next time. Uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or, or leave a comment. You can find me on Twitter as well. Um, if you have any comments at all, I'd love to hear from you. So uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. so true. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hanged him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew. His soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah.